0: This afternoon is Psalm 145, and we also will be reading a portion from Matthew 13. So first, Psalm 145, we'll begin reading in verse 1. David's Psalm of Praise I will extol Thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Our genera- one generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works and men shall speak of the mighty of the might of thy terrible acts and i will declare thy greatness they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness the lord is gracious and full of compassion slow to anger and of great mercy the lord is good to all And His tender mercies are over all His works. All Thy works shall praise Thee, O Lord, and Thy saints shall bless Thee. They shall speak of the glory of Thy kingdom, and talk of Thy power, to make known to the sons of men His mighty acts, and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and Thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him to all that call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him, but all the wicked will He destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Amen. And now we turn also to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 24 through 30. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. Another parable put he forth, the Lord Jesus, unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man, which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came, and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up, and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came, and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares. And bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Thus far, may God bless the reading of his word. And we now, dear congregation, we open now our Bibles again in Psalm 145, as we hope to consider um, portions of this psalm before us. I'll be reading verse 11. And then we'll be reading also Lord's Day 48. The reason we are looking at this psalm is that we have through Lord's 48 the, the doctrine of the kingdom of God before us. Psalm 145 verse 11 says, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. And This is in essence what this sermon is, is going to do. We'll be talking about the power of God. We will be speaking about the glory of God's kingdom. That is why the theme is the glory of God's kingdom. And our whole first point, will be looking exactly at that, the glorious majesty of His kingdom. Looking in a, in a general way, different portions of God's word, and then also focusing a little bit on this very psalm that, that simply declares and exalts God and His kingdom. And then secondly, we will see the the sad reality that there is a fierce opposition to God's kingdom. And we'll look at that opposition. This is why we read Matthew where we have that parable where the farmer sows good seed, but then an enemy comes and he sows the tares. And that is a parable about the kingdom. And Jesus was showing that even though in His kingdom God rules supreme, Um, That does not mean that all is going um, perfectly well in terms of all being in purity and in line with God's kingdom. There is an animosity to God's kingdom that is active. But as we're going to see, that animosity is, is, is a rival to God's kingdom. It does seek to destroy God's kingdom and to usurp the authority of God in God's kingdom. But it never will prevail and it's actually completely in submission still to God's kingdom. And then thirdly, we'll look at the nearness of God's help. Again, going back to this psalm, this psalm ends with this wonderful hope and encouragement that the Lord is near to all who call upon Him. And that is the greatest defense that you and I have against the enemy of God's kingdom. To be near to God, to know that God is near to you so having read Psalm 145 and then also verse 11, I want to read also now Lord's Day 48. And this is found in page 85 in the back of our Psalters. Going through our study of the Lord's Prayer last Lord's Day, we looked at the phrase, Hallowed be thy name. And now we look at the petition, Thy kingdom come. Which is the second petition. It is, Thy kingdom come. And what does that mean? That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church, destroy the works of the devil, here's the reference to the opposition to God's kingdom, and all violence which would exalt itself against thee, and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word, till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all thy kingdom come is the request and it's it's asking that there would be this acknowledgement this understanding that God is king that he rules supreme so entering immediately into our first point, the glorious majesty of God's kingdom. Um, the first thing is to refresh our minds. Just in reading the Lord's Day, we, we are refreshed with what God's kingdom is. And, and in a summary fashion, God's kingdom is the reality of God's rule. Um, and that He rules over the whole and entire universe. Not, not only in the hearts of those who love Him and who serve Him, but over... Even the hearts of those who don't. Um, we, we do speak more narrowly of God's kingdom in the sense of if you are entering God's kingdom, in that sense of salvation, because those, that is the realm in which you find those who, who are serving God in His kingdom. But there's this reality that not a single person can escape being under the kingdom of God in terms of His rule. And this is what we are praying, Thy kingdom come. We are pleading that every single soul in this entire world would acknowledge that God is king and that He is worthy to be honored. Um, the, the, The theologian Charles Hodge, he explained... The whole domain of god 's kingdom and government in these in these four points i 'll start with these in a in a general view of god 's kingdom first, he says and affirms that this kingdom is universal, and he says this that includes all the creatures of God in all their actions, the external world, rational and irrational creatures, things great and small, ordinary, and extraordinary, are equally and always under the control of God. The doctrine of providence excludes both necessity and chance from the universe, substituting for them the intelligent and universal control of all, of an infinite, omnipresent God. When the world speaks of chance, it is their way of even opposing the kingdom of God. And I love how Hodges puts it, that the reality that God is um, a ruler upon this earth, it, it excludes from the whole universe, even the thought and possibility of chance. And then the second thing he says is that this government of God is powerful. And he says this, it is the universal sway of omnipotence which renders certain the accomplishment of His designs. And then the third ingredient, he says, of the government of God and His his sovereign kingdom is that He is wise. He says this, quote, He governs the material world with fixed laws which He has established, irrational animals by their instincts, and rational creatures agreeably by their nature. Then, when we look at this world... Um, We think of the law of gravity. Well, that is a law that God has instituted. And everything, whether people like it or not, whether things are are even thinking in terms of obeying that law. See, this is the wisdom of God. Everything falls under that law and follows it. it. It is impossible to go beyond the laws that God has instituted. And when people do such as disobeying His commands, well, there will be consequences. And see, the very reality there are these consequences demonstrate that you really are not a free being to do as you will. And then fourthly, and the last thing, is that God's providence and the way of His government is holy. And He says this, that is, there is nothing in the ends proposed, the means adopted, or the agency employed, inconsistent, "...with His infinite holiness, or which the highest moral excellence does not demand." And so, these four realities, God's government and power is universal, it is all-powerful, it is wise, and it is holy. Now, this world has known many men who have been great leaders, and powerful leaders, and even wise leaders... But not a single one of them have been holy in the pure sense of the word, nor have they nor have they been entirely wise. Um, some have been wise and good leaders, but then they lacked power. Um, none of them were all powerful. Many probably wish they could have led better, but they didn't have the power to do it. Um, God is the only one who has all of these ingredients. Power, wisdom, and holiness. And in a an universal way. Um, there have been men who have tried to rule in a universal way. Conquering one nation after another. And in essence, all of those have lacked especially the ingredient of holiness. And that is what has caused so much terror. And even bloodshed in the history of this world. Men who had the power. You could say, in a sense, they had the wisdom for the tactics of achieving what they wanted. But they had no holiness. And that is why there was so much sadness. And even today. We just look at the numbers of people. Who were killed under their domains. And it just is a tremor. Brings a tremor to our hearts. See these are, these are leaders. Who are not complete. But God is and in looking at, at God's word in a general way, it's astonishing to find the the harmony of scripture speaking of God as a ruler and supremely so, and as a king. You you'll find passages that speak of God as a king, like Psalm forty-seven seven. For God is a king of all the earth. Psalm twenty-four ten. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And then God is spoken of as having a throne because that is what a king has. And you read of God as having a sword like a king would have and and use his sword. God is spoken of as having a scepter because that is what kings have. God is spoken of as having crowns. And not only just one crown, but crowns. Look at Revelation 19.12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. And He had a name written that no man knew, but He Himself. That was a description specifically of the Lord Jesus. And He had many crowns. God is spoken of as having robes of royalty. He is spoken of as having a power that is of no equal, and then all of that power, we find verses that, of course, speak of it being everlasting. It's even where we read in Psalm 146, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Um, this yearning and desire from a people in a kingdom is still echoed today as people would say, God save the king or God save the queen. It, it's, it's a yearning that our king and our queen may continue, but they die. But never the Lord. His dominion endureth throughout all generations. And He rules... Over every ruler. That's Psalm 95.3 that says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And God's here as a a word for the leaders in this world. God is the king of kings. And then we find verses that says that rulers rule through the ruling of God. Proverbs 8.15 By me kings reign and princes decree justice. It's not that every king and prince in this world are in opposition to God. No, they're they're only doing the work of God. They are ruling through his strength and through his power. And and now looking at Psalm 146, if we if we line up um, every verse that speaks of God in his character of as king, not, not only is he king in the sense that he has, we, we saw these general ones through Hodge's little summary, his holiness and his wisdom and his power. But if we go to the psalm, in verse 3 it begins, we could say that there is the greatness of God as king. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. So God is a great king. If you go to verse 4, we see He is a king, a king who is full of glorious works. Um, verse 4, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. So He is a king who is not just... Glorious for sitting in glorious apparel, etc., but his works are great. And in verse 8, we start seeing some of his works, which is based on his grace. Look at verse 8 the Lord is gracious and full of compassion and, and great in mercy. So we find His grace and His compassion and His mercy. See, there are already the reality. You look at all these men who were mighty and powerful in the world and and, and, and it's hard to find anything like this of mercy and compassion and, and of grace. Um, in verse 9, we see His goodness. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all His works. In verse 11, it's just a verse exclaiming His glory. We, we saw... The whole theme of His glory last Lord's Day. Hallowed be Thy name is asking. May Thy name be glorious or known as glorious because it is um, who God is. And then, also in, in verse eleven, we see God's power. Verse thirteen, we see God's eternity. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Verse fourteen, we see God's help. Uh, the word help is important because we, if we see that God is gracious, that He is full of compassion, that He is great in mercy, well, He is good to all. Well, what is it that He does in verse 14? The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raises up all those that bow, are bowed down. See, this is a practical way in which God helps. He, he comes to those who fell and He puts them back standing again he he cares for those who are weak he cares for those who are tender and He sees that people have sinned. They have fallen prey of the very enemy that we're going to talk about in our second point. And what does the Lord do? He doesn't say, oh, you're a traitor. Go back to that kingdom if that's what you prepare prefer. No, He doesn't. He sends His Son to die on the cross so that your sins may be forgiven. So that if you fall because of sin, there is forgiveness in His Son who on the cross received the wrath of the Father. And so, it's not a little thing. It's not a little help in verse 14. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raises up all those that be bowed down. See, this is how He's good. This is how He's merciful. This is how He's compassionate. And that's not all. If we go to verse 15-16... through 16, we can see that in his kingdom and his glorious power he he is a God of providence look at verse 15 the eyes of all wait upon thee and thou givest them their meat in due season thou openest thy hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing God provides he gives what you need those who are fallen he provides making them stand and those who, who are hungry he provides giving them food you need a job the Lord will give you a job you need health He will give you strength. Um, He he provides. He's a God of providence. And then you go to verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and holy in all His works. Nothing that God does in His kingdom is, is seeking to usurp in some ways or or to conquer what doesn't belong to him or or to do something in an illegal way you look at the story again of the kings of this earth and the more powerful they they have gotten the more they 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 were connected to crimes and to murders into violence but not God he is righteous in all his ways when you peruse God's Word and you find passages that, that do bring a sense of great sadness because of the great judgments that had to happen, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the destruction of the whole world with Noah in Noah's time and him saved through the ark, that is God being good even to you and me today beloved think of it we we think of the world as a hard place to live today it's exactly because of the darkness the violence the crime if those judgments had not happened those many years ago the world today would be unlivable we would have more than just walls around our houses and electric fences and etc because sin would be uncontrollable it was god's love And it was also his judgment. That is what a king does. A king sees crime. And because he loves his people. And he doesn't want the crime to continue. He brings justice. God is righteous. He's done it always in a right way. He's never judged anyone in a way that was not right. And and you even see God, He doesn't have to do that, but He does it in a way to show us so that He would silence any of us who were to say, well, He's not being fair. And a little example like this, here's the Lord, He comes with those two angels and they have a dinner with Abraham. And then the Lord sends those two angels into Sodom to visit the city and evaluate if it is ripe for judgment. See, God knew. He understood. He knew what He would destroy it the very next morning. But He sends those angels really more for us, for us to see that God is not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way of anger and because He's uncontrolled in His passions. No, He's showing that He's doing justice. and and that He's evaluating measures. He's wanting to show to us how truly Sodom was ripe for destruction. And remember what happened. Those angels were were nearly destroyed by the men in the city. And it showed how truly the violence and the evil was so great that the cries of that city had risen to the Lord. It was God's way to show, see, I'm, I'm being just, and I'm being right. This has to happen. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. And then, still to continue, verse 18 through 19, is the verse that says that the Lord is nigh unto all them who call upon Him. Um, This speaks of His nearness. It speaks of how He answers prayer. It speaks that it's not that, that He goes far. We're the ones who go far in our sins, but He's always near. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. And then verse 20, the last item that shows in, in, in how God governs, how God is a king. And verse 20 speaks, if we were to say a word, it is protection. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him. And the very last phrase, but all the wicked will He destroy. That's justice. This is who God is as a king. He is compassionate, he is merciful, great. He's full of grace, glory, power. He's eternal. He helps those who call him. He is just. He provides. He is righteous. He is near. And so the conclusion of all this is that that it is in your greatest interest to bow to this king. Because his is the winning kingdom. His is the ruling power. His is the final authority. His is the assigned victory. Um, The Puritan Thomas Watson said, It is counted great policy to be on the strongest side. And boys and girls, I'm starting here where I'm doing as verse 11 say, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. I'm I'm talking about the power of God. I'm speaking of His kingdom. And you and I should be thinking, is that the kingdom I'm in? Is that the kingdom I serve? Uh, Yes, every human is in this kingdom. But are you then in this kingdom willingly and lovingly? Are, Are you a friend of the Lord? And... Of course, we understand all only through the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in Him. But soon we're going to verse uh, our, our second point, which will speak of the opposition. And there are those who are in that camp. There is this opposition. It is fierce. And everyone who's not saved is in that camp. In the camp of the opposition. And Thomas Watson again said, It is counted great policy to be. On the strongest side. On the side of Christ. So to believe this King. To fear Him. To obey Him. To proclaim this Kingdom. To to love this King. to, To pray, Thy Kingdom come. Is the right thing to do. It is the God-fearing thing to do. It is the wise. We can say so many things about this. It It is the righteous, the appropriate, the blessed, the honorable, the suitable, proper, the only legitimate thing to do. So every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come. Understand what you're praying. You're praying, Lord, may this be acknowledged in this world, in my heart and in the heart of my family, in the heart of my neighbors. May we understand Thou art the King of the universe and may we be serving Thee as subjects who are loyal through the saving work of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Because see, to believe this King and to honor this King, to fear Him and obey Him and proclaim Him is the way to to glorify Him. It is the way even of the answer of that prayer being fulfilled in you. When you say, Lord, hallowed be Thy name, it is through your life, through the life of those who believe in Jesus, that God's name will be hallowed here on earth. Thy kingdom come in the many commentaries I've read, Calvin deals with this. It is in the life of the church that the visible king, that the kingdom of God will be made more visible. When people see believers obeying this king, it'll be a testimony to the world that this kingdom really exists. They see subjects who love this king, who follow him, who who meet every Lord's Day to worship him. Beloved, see, even if, if people don't, don't talk to you, don't hear you, just the fact they know you honor Him, you worship Him, you go to church, that, that, is, in, that is a message to this whole world. I don't believe, beloved, that it is, that it is a coincidence that, that in many ways around the whole world there's been this dissonance where in many places in the whole world because of all that's happened, we understand all the details where many people were not able to go to church and we were, and we were hearing sermons through the internet. But see, it had an impact upon the world. And this impact is reverberating even now. In terms of all of those riots and in terms of all of the violence and, and and the way that it can happen is like this there are people who never even go to church but in their minds they're thinking well nobody else is going to church it, it must be it doesn't it must mean it must be that it doesn't really matter maybe there isn't this kingdom maybe I can live whichever way I want maybe I can burn this store and take everything that's in it and it doesn't really matter and see maybe those things aren't going through the mind of each one but when the when the When the church is not really so visible, it starts reverberating in the minds of others. And this is why it's so important that we be faithful to the Lord in in all of our occupations. I'm not meaning only on Sundays, of course. I'm meaning in our whole lives, being a witness. It is what God says. You are salt of the earth. You are the light of this world, His church because Christ is a light and Christ will be seen through His people. So that's our first point. The gracious majesty, glorious majesty of His kingdom. But let's speak for a moment in our second point about the fierce opposition to the kingdom. When you notice um, in, in, in the explanation of the prayer, Thy kingdom come, we pretty much dealt with that first part. That is, rule us so by Thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves... More and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church. But we're also praying when we pray thy kingdom come, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word. So let's talk about this whole reality that there is an opposition to the kingdom of God. Again, this is why we read in Matthew, we see that parable of the kingdom. There is the sowing of the seed, but at night there's an enemy that sows the tares. Jesus was showing with this, there's this opposition. Here I am preaching the kingdom, but the enemy is opposing what I preach and what I proclaim. Well, the first thing I want to say here is that this is, that there's an irrationality to this opposition. Because of everything we just finished seeing, when we talk about God in His kingdom and in His glory, we we, we saw the majesty, we saw the compassion, we, we saw the mercy. The things that God opposes are the things that make life miserable. Here you have people going on killing other people. Isn't it good that those people are suppressed and judged? And we don't want that violence. And that's what God suppresses. He he never suppresses anything good. It is only the evil. And why would there be people opposing God? Why would we oppose a God who is compassionate, merciful, good, who is glorious, powerful, who's eternal? Which means no matter how much I oppress him or oppose him, I'll never win. See, it's it's an irrational thing that there is such a thing as opposing a God who is so gracious. And you look at that whole element of him, of of him. Um, Making stand those who fall. Verse 14. The Lord upholdeth all them that fall and raises up all those that be bowed down. How did the Lord do this? Well, He saw us fallen in Adam and He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live here on this earth where all the violence is, where all the meanness, where all the anger, where all the murder goes on. He sends Jesus here And Jesus becomes the focus of all that violence and all that anger and all that evil when they place Him on the cross seeking to kill Him. And even while Jesus was doing that, He was doing that so that we would be upholden, so that we would be able to be raised up after we had fallen. How irrational it is to oppose a God who forgives you of your sins. Oppose a God who gives you hope and heaven. See, the world doesn't understand. And if you're not saved, you don't understand who you're opposing. You're opposing the one who loves you, who made you, who gave you His very image, and then who gave to this world His very Son. Why would anyone oppose Him? See, it speaks of how our hearts without Jesus are in such folly so there's an irrationality. But let's, let's talk now about the foundation of this opposition. Like where does it come from? Well, when, when, when we read in the catechism, it says destroy the works of the devil. See, it brings in that very first phrase, the one person that in many ways, I'm not here trying to say that he's the one who is guilty of my sins. It's, we understand we can't call it that way. But when we speak in terms of where it all started, where did the, the sin really was um, beginning, it was in the person of Satan. Um, he was the first enemy of God. And in that parable that Jesus is telling, is certainly is a reference to Satan, that he would be the one who comes at night and puts the tares. See, um, even any of us, we don't have that, possibility of, of forcing uh, and that's not the right word, because Satan can't force anyone to stay without Christ. It, it is in our own hearts that we would be believing or not trusting Christ. Satan can't force us either way, but he does have an emphasis in human hearts that we as humans don't. I um, in that parable, Satan is, is pretty much the enemy. And so we're talking about him right now. His is another realm. God's word shows and describes that this realm is true. This realm exists. Um, he began as an angel, he was part of the glorious majesty of God's kingdom in a willing way. Um, from the moment that he was created, for, the, for, for as long as that rebellion began, there was, it's hard for us to understand, but there was a harmony. And there was a, a, a desire to worship God. Um, I'm, I'm going to read a couple passages because I know that it is in some of our thinking. It's every now and then I am asked, where is it that we read that Satan rebelled. And I want to read a few verses in the two passages that give us this this narrative. The first one is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. I'll just read verses 14 through 15. And each one of these passages in Ezekiel and in Isaiah... Um, The Lord is in a prophetical way speaking to a king and to a king in this world. But we realize as we read that that king goes beyond just the physical human king and it becomes a symbol more for Satan himself. So in Ezekiel 28 verse 14 we read, and here the one he was speaking to was the king of Tyre. But then we realize he becomes more just one who points to Satan himself. Look at verse 14. Ezekiel 28. Thou art the anointed cherub. See, the word cherub is speaking of an angel. So it's no longer the king in Tyre. It is now an angel that covereth. And I have set thee so thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. See, that verse 15 is is so powerfully mysterious. There's a moment that this cherub was perfect. And there was a moment that iniquity was found in him. And what was that iniquity? It was that he desired the glory that he was commanded to direct other angels to glorify. See, he was the leading angel to conduct this worship service to God. And there was a moment he desired it for himself. And then if I read in Isaiah, another glimpse of what happened. Isaiah 14, verse 12. And we read there, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, See, if you look at chapter 14 of Isaiah, it was speaking of the king of Babylon. But before too long, it's not him anymore, it is Lucifer and the rebellion that happened in heaven. We find passages in the New Testament that speak of all the angels that corroborated with him who agreed with Him in 2 Peter 2.4. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved into judgment. See, so it wasn't just Him. It was another contingency of angels. Jude 1 verse 6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He hath reserved an everlasting chains. Under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And we, we have reason to believe. There's one verse that possibly gives an idea of the quantity. It still doesn't show the total. But it gives an idea in, in, in comparison. That it could have been one third of the angelic host. That Satan took with him. And I'm referring to Revelation 12. Verse 4 that says, and his tail, this is speaking of the dragon, and it says that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. And then you go to verse 9 of Revelation 12, it says, and the, that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And there's that little reference that he would have drawn one third. Of the stars of heaven, and possibly the angels that were there, in total, one third could have rebelled. Satan is called a prince of this world, John twelve thirty one. He is called the god of this world in Second Corinthians four four. He's referred to by Jesus in a parable as a strong armed man, Luke eleven twenty one. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, Ephesians two: two. And first Peter typifies him, chapter five verse eight, as a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour, and again, not just him, all this host of enemies of God. Together, and We get a glimpse of this number when we find that one man who was afflicted with a legion of evil spirits. And remember how Mary Magdalene, she had had seven evil spirits drawn out of her. So this is a little glimpse of the opposition. Now, I, I love the summary that Calvin gives... When we, when we think, well, why does the Bible reveal these names, these titles, the reality of this kingdom? And this is what Calvin says, we, we have been forewarned that an enemy relentlessly threatens us, an enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. We must then bend our every effort in this goal, that we should not let ourselves be overwhelmed by carelessness of faint-heartedness, but on the contrary, with courage, rekindled, stand our ground in combat. Since this military service ends only at death, let us urge ourselves to perseverance. Indeed, conscious of our weakness and ignorance let us especially call upon God's help relying upon him alone in whatever we attempt since it is he alone who can supply us with counsel and strength courage and armor beloved see what is the reason of even me sharing all of this that God's word says well it's it's so that we realize so that we believe And so that we would make use of verses such as this verse 18. And maybe beginning the sermon, this verse wouldn't mean as much to you as it does now. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 145. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. To all that call upon Him in truth. And and boys and girls, think of it this way. Those temptations you have had to sin, and many of them could have been that maybe just your heart is, yes, leaning towards that because you had that temptation. It could be because you see a picture from the world, and the world is tempting you. And right there we see our two enemies, the indwelling sin in our hearts and the world itself. But the third one is the devil. And he is an enemy who suggests things to our hearts. He has the power to put ideas in your mind. Now, when ideas are there, don't waste time thinking, oh, was that from the devil? If it's a thought to sin, just shun it like the devil. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. It could very well be your very indwelling sin that's giving you that idea. So I'm not here trying to say that everything that arises in our minds is always of the devil. It's really not, it could be just our own indwelling sin. Where it could be a, an idea that you read or a friend tells you to do something. But Satan is behind all of this. Because he's the one who tempted our first father and mother. And he's the one who's behind the ideas of people who put pictures out there and who gives ideas. And, and when you think of the whole concept of, of, of atheism and Darwinism, Satan is certainly behind there having given ideas and fashioning these thoughts in the minds of men. And people agreeing with what they want because they're confederate with him. They're serving him. Every temptation to sin is in one way or another connected to him. And this is what I'm meaning in with this quote of, of Calvin. Let us be so careful. And let us give due diligence. Beloved, don't put your guards down. Don't put your swords down, which is God's word. Don't put your shield down, which is the shield of faith, which God uses to divert the fiery darts of the evil one. We are to pray, thy kingdom come. And when you pray, thy kingdom come, you are praying that God would destroy that evil kingdom, the enemy kingdom. You are supposed to flee to Christ at every temptation because He's the one who will give you the strength. He's the one who will, will give you um, the, the love for what is right instead of the attraction for what is evil. And don't ever disregard faith, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ because faith is that shield that, that quenches the darts of the enemies. Um. So having seen the fierce opposition, um, we began with the glorious majesty. And thirdly, to a degree I've delved in our third point already, the nearness of God's help. When we think of His glory, we love that theme. When we think of the sadness of this opposition, it brings shiver to our hearts. And especially because of this, beloved. I know that even as I'm preaching... This isn't just all from God's word in terms of outside to inform your hearts. Who among us does not know the experience of falling prey to the deceptions and the depravities and, and all of the evil ways of Satan? You see, every time we have fallen, we have fallen prey to his very tactics we have done his bidding so we know in our very flesh we know in our experience that this opposition is true you who are a believer claims to be part of this kingdom in a willing way but every time we sin it's like we're joining forces with the enemy himself fighting against god's kingdom And it has given us guilt. And it has made us heavy hearted. And it has made us discouraged. But not for a second we say, well then let me join that army. No. This is where again a verse like 18 is so near to our hearts. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. To all that call upon Him in truth. See, the nearness of God's help is another glorious part of the kingdom of God. The reality of that opposition helps us realize how precious it is that God is near when we call. See, boys and girls, think of yourself as a subject of a king, but you go out to hunt. And even in service of this king, you're going to go to hunt to f- bring food back to the kingdom to, to feed the people. And you're doing that in service of the kingdom. But while you're there hunting, you meet with the enemies from another kingdom. See, from this other realm. They all are at the same time under the domain of your king, but they're rebels. And they try to tell you, why don't you join us? What does your king do for you? What's the salary he gives you? And you say the salary, and then they say, but our salary will be greater. We'll give you a bigger home. We'll give you more beautiful clothes. You're not going to have to go out hunting like that. Just join our army. And won't it be nice for you to know that you're not going to have to battle them alone You can remember this verse, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. You can in the very darkness of that forest say, Lord, help me. Help me. The temptation is great. They are trying to get me to change kingdoms, and I don't want to. Lord, help me. Please come to my aid. And look at verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord will preserve all them that love Him. The Lord is near. This is the blessed hope of His kingdom. And it helps us also to understand, just going back to one point regarding the opposition, Satan never ever has the upper hand. He cannot. And he will not. And and I want to read this one continuation of what Calvin says. He says, Satan is clearly under God's power. And is so ruled by his bidding as to be compelled to render his service. Indeed, When we say that Satan resists God and that Satan works disagree with God's works, we say at the same time that this resistance and this opposition are dependent upon God's sufferance. But because with the bridle of His power God holds Him bound and restrained, He carries out only those things which have been divinely permitted to Him, and so He obeys His Creator." Calvin is literally saying that Satan, at the end of the day, ends up obeying his creator. Whether he will or not, whether he desires or not, because he is compelled to yield him service wherever God impels him. And here's one way that he does it he tempts you, you realize it's fierce. And so you pray this prayer. Lord, help me. Thy word says thou art near. Please be near to me. You call upon him in truth. And that's what God wants you to do. And you did that because Satan tempted you. And it's in that kind of domain that Satan, at the end of the day, is obeying his Creator. He tempted Jesus. And Jesus did not sin. And a Jesus who had no sin was the will of God. But it would have meant nothing if He had never been tempted. Because He had to be tempted. Like the first Adam was tempted, but fell. The second Adam had to be tempted, but not fall. Satan was obeying. His Creator. But see, it's never in that God tells him to do that. He's just doing according to His nature. And this is a reality that encourages us because we realize no matter how powerful Satan is, he is never more powerful than God. And at the end of the day, he's even obeying God. And in the way that it can be very experiential to you is in that when you are there then finding your need for God. Lord, help me. I can't do this alone. Please be near to me. Please preserve me that I won't fall. Or I have fallen. Make me stand. And and you see that God is, is, is pleased. You're doing what He wants you to do. And Satan here was used to make you realize your need of Him. So as we're studying the Lord's Prayer, may we realize all of what this means. Hallowed be thy name. Acknowledge, remember always that. You're praying that you yourself may live in such a way that God's name will be sanctified and glorified in this world. And then you pray, thy kingdom come. So may you and me, as we pray this, acknowledge, Lord, help me to live as one who is obedient to my King, who acknowledges this King. And who, even in the reality of the opposition, that I would not be scared in the way of hopelessness, but that I would just come to thy help, to thee for help. And just one word, beloved, before we close if you do not know the Lord Jesus, if you are not saved, whether you know it or not, you are in the realm of darkness. That's even what conversion is. It is a transferring of realms. When we are saved, He takes us from that realm of darkness and implants us in the realm of the Son of His love. And until you are not saved, you are actually in that realm. And why? Why would you want to continue there? Pray this very prayer, pleading for God's help. Ask that He would hear you plead with earnest Um, in truth it says in verse 18 with a heart that truly desires his help and then believe the word he is near unto all who call upon him in truth and may the Lord be blessed to have another soul may the Lord be glorified that one more soul is part of his kingdom amen let us pray Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy kingdom. We do pray that it would come. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge the reality that that all those who serve Thee are willingly found in this kingdom. Help us to understand the reality, Lord, that even those who do not serve Thee, they cannot escape this kingdom, even though they are found as, as rebels in it. And certainly not living in, in the light of it. But we plead Lord with Thee that Thou would graciously cause us to stop. Lord we pray even for revivals. That, that there would be giant numbers of people Lord. That would call out to Thee for salvation. That Thou would open their hearts to see their need, Lord. Open their eyes to see that they are in rebellion to the King of kings. The very One who gives them breath is the One whom they are opposing. And we plead with Thee, Lord, that Thou would help them see this. Bring them, Lord, from that darkness. We thank Thee, Lord, for having saved us by Thy grace. We, we acknowledge, Lord, that Thou art the one who deserves all the honor and glory. We would have never come. We would have never called. We would have never seen our need if Thou had not helped us and woken us up to acknowledge that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we needed a Savior. But we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus. We thank Thee for the King. Who came to this earth. And we pray that through the Lord Jesus. The world would acknowledge the kingdom. And yearn to be part of it. In a favorable way. In a serving way. And not opposing it. In a rebellious way. And by way of unbelief. We pray Lord all these things. And ask that thou would be glorified. That thy name Lord would be hallowed. And that thy kingdom would come. In Jesus' name, amen.